Now then, around 20 years ago, me and some Avafai neighbours planted about oh, 800 little trees in this corner of Edema Parks. The wee woody, as it's called, is nae so wee new, with some bonny big birk trees and bonny big ash trees and a lot of wild cherry trees or geens. I've got rowlings over here, crab apples over here, and oh dear, a lot of Easter rabbits, I'm afraid. Rabbits are we. Alas, that's the joys of growing trees. You win some and you lose some. Now, I get help about the place for Geordie, otherwise Kent is my croft manager. And his generation has a treasure trove of wisdom about country life and the woods. We were both out here the other day, filling in the spaces for the new trees and the tubes were dead and, of course, had been eaten alive with, with rabbits. And Geordie tells me that this was Kent as beaten up when he worked in the forestry, beaten up, repairing the damage and filling in the spaces for the deed trees were. <laughs> I feel like I've been beaten up by the rabbits, mind you. Only while looking on the breast side of the hill, I'm standing aside my gains about to burst into bloom and the blackthorn bush has, has actually burst into bloom already. It'll be covered in honeybees in daytime and the gains will be covered with bees in a few days, of course. Good little craters. But there are nasty good little craters attacking some of my trees, some of my, my cherry trees in particular. And when Geordie cut down some of them that were looking deed, if it looked like Aztec artwork or a feather design appeared in some of the deed wood, fit made the patterns, we thought. Was this the work of a beastie, we thought? We didn't again. Fit was it? I found out me of a forestry expert, Irvin Ross. Now, I'll let you hear if it Irvin says later on. Right, we're going to be speaking about bugs and beasties in this episode. Goodings as well as baddings. But it's time to join the gang, as usual, patiently waiting in their virtual sheds. Come on with me, out to the wee woody, over the park. Oh, and welcome to Grow Radio. And welcome to our new season of Grow Radio, a time when we are start with great enthusiasm and gusto. Problem is, by the end of the season, or maybe halfway through, we'll find we've planted too much, or near enough, or the wrong varieties. But dinner worry. Dinner, you ain't worry. We have the very team here to help you through the season again. And let me introduce you to the team, ready, willing and able, to sort out your gardens, whether big or small, pots, windy boxes or nothing. Just enjoy the banter and the fresh air. And we've got plenty tea for armchair gardeners. So the team, the head gardener himself, a past curator at the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh, vice chair of the National Trust for Scotland, welcome Dave Mitchell! Hi, Frida. It's grand to be back and That's trying to offer a bit of advice to folk for all ears. That's good. Now, Dave, before we go any further, before I introduce Richie, Steve and Claire, on behalf of the team on Crow Radio and Scots Radio, congratulations, Dave, on being inaugurated into the prestigious 
Royal Caledonian Horticultural Society and being presented with the Scottish Horticultural Medal with the SHM, that's Letters New After Your Name. Now, the award was first inaugurated in 1959 and only a maximum of 50 people can hold it at any one time. Big, big congratulations there, Dave, on the citation. Fittinese, we are very, very proud. You're here. Well done, Dave. Uh, if you could see me, I'd be off embarrassed. So there you are. Got a face. It's a very special thing to have, Frida. I mean, Scottish Horticultural Medal. There's only fifty folk at a time can aye. hold it, and I no, I, I was kind of chuffed indeed when the letter arrived. I can well imagine. Well imagine. We'll celebrate at some time in the year when we're all together. Right, and in Edinburgh's wheel was Sue Snorter and Arthur Keen Gerner, Richie Werner. Up, do you find Richie? Aye, we're bra. Been out for our first woodland walk already, so that's been nice. There's bluebells starting to come up. Wee oh. tetes are showing their heads. Oh, we've seen the end of the snowdrops. The wee, oh. All sorts of wee things are happening, so it was nice. And we've seen oh. our first bumblebees and blah, 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 blah. So it's nice to be back out in nature, you know. Very oh, happy. Intranet, the prude custodian. Oh, a new allotment last year. Come in, Steve Byrne. Aye, aye, Frida. Aye, aye, Steve. And uh, in one short sentence, because we'll hear mayor in a minute, is it all gone according to plan in your allotment, eh? Well, just needing a better weather, Frida. Just our many weekdays and kind of get out to get digging, so. Oh, I suppose that. Aye. And the star of every show, the only person that can actually silence us are, come in, or cook, fellow Haber, Claire Patterson. Hiya, Frida. Hiya, Claire. Hiya, Claire. Is it snowing across in Loch Arbor? No, no, drinking wet, the normal, oh. normal, normal business here. Oh, well, we've had, <laughs> we've had snow here this morning. Okay, if wow. it's on the menu this time, Claire, give us some, some idea. Oh, well, this time, Frida, we've been doing a wee bit of foraging, so I've got a wild garlic soup, got a oh. nice kind of dish with some purple sprout and broccoli. Some kale crisps as a wee snackette, and then to finish up, that lovely new rhubarb, the rhubarb and elderflower jelly. I love wee snackettes. We're into our <laughs> wee snackettes in this programme. Okay, let's get started. Quick question for your chums doing in Lockerbie, Fiona and Paul Dean. Fiona writes, how to stop frost damage on lettuces, seedlings and tatties? Dave? Well, it's really simple, Frida. You just need to keep a close eye on them. Cover the young plants with a fleece at night to avoid the risk of frost. Tuck it mm. off during the day unless it's cold with the snow, etc. The best advice I can give is don't plant your tatties too early. Watch the weather. Don't be impatient. Get them in at the right time as it warms up and mind the earth them up little by little regularly as they start to appear above the ground. And you might even want to think for your tatties about putting a wee bit of fleece on top of the tips of them, just if Jack Frost's dancing about. Right. Basically, watch the weather, be diligent, and think about what you're doing. Uh, in this part of the world, I don't know if it's why else, when we earth up the tatties, it's called furring up. Furring up. And folk going about, oh, I saying, have you furred yet? <laughs> have you <laughs> furred up? I, qu- I quite like that. Have you furred? <laughs> Are you furring? You know, past tense. I have furred, we have furred. <laughs> the tatties maybe just think of the soil like a nice furry blanket that keeps oh, them warm. Furred up, it's a kind of strange thing. It's like Jordy's saying about uh, beating up the trees, you know, beating up. You're thinking we're furring up. Anyway, Dave, can we turn our attention to the recent ban on the Matilda Hyde slug pellets? Gardeners are now banned for putting out 
those slug pellets, the tackle pests. But there is a confusion. It's the metaldehyde pellets that are banned, not the ferrous phosphate type. Can you clarify things for us? Well, there's quite a lot going on around this at the moment, Frida. And most interestingly, the Royal Horticultural Society recently declared that slugs and snails are not seen as a pest any longer. And the reason being is they recycle dead leaves and other plant matter and they aid the health of the soil and the environment by doing that. And you're better to control them using protective barriers such as cloches or copper-coated snail tape or there's a thing called SAS slug and snail repellent that's based on a yucca extract. Some folk use bark, some folk use eggshells and then of course there's slug traps that are filled with a wee drop beer or water some folk even try alternative feeding, where you put sacrificial lettuce and cabbage plants down to keep them away from your main crops. My own favourite wee trick is hand-picking. When they're rife in my garden, I go out at dusk with a torch and I hunt them down and I gather them up. To get rid of them, I just drop them into a pot of salty water. Another wee trick is to put an old bit of damp carpet down on the ground. They love hiding underneath that and you can catch yeah. them that way. You can get stuff called nemaslug, which is a wee nematode that swims up inside them and eats them for the inside out. Personally, I don't like chemical slug pellets, no matter no. whether it's ferric phosphate or not, because these things can harm other wildlife, including earthworms and your pets. Mm. But if you hate slug pellets, use them safely. Read the instructions, use them sparingly, and store them safely. The medaldehyde chemical, you know, is a contact poison, as you can. It damages the slug mucus cells. It's horrible. It causes them to release excessive amounts of slime, so they, they eventually dehydrate and, and die. It's horrible. So the chemical can cause poisoning to hedgehogs and birds. So, you know, it's good we've got alternatives. The ferric phosphate can also cause damage to wildlife and earthworms and that. Basically, just any yeast slug pellets. Try all them other things that are yeast. Right. Me, you know, live and let live a wee bit. And remember, the RHS have said slugs and snails are no pests any longer. Well, I never. Uh, just to talk our minds off slugs and the coos weather, let me welcome our programme cook. And as I said, the only one that can actually silence us are we listen with great interest to whatever she says. Claire, give us your first two recipes. Well, my first one today, Frida, I've got a wild garlic and spinach soup. So to make that, you fry a chopped onion with a wee bit of butter till it's tender. Add in a diced tatty and then some vegetable or chicken stock. And then a couple of big handfuls of your washed and trimmed wild garlic and a wee bit less of spinach. And then you just whiz it up right away to keep that lovely green. And if you need a wee bit more stock to get it to the right consistency, add a wee bit more stock. It's also, if you've got nettles around, especially the, the new ones coming through, you can use the nettles in place of the spinach for a double foraging soup. <laughs> you can, it's one of the best soups I ever tasted was nettle soup. I just really... It's, oh, delicious. it's delicious. It's delicious. Uh, and all the, um, the, the stingers are on the top of the leaves, so if you pick them from underneath, obviously wear gloves, but if you pick them from underneath... There's no sting on the bottom, I, I, I believe, or that's what I've found. <laughs> ah, it's good though. And then my next one today, we've got the lovely purple sprout and broccoli with feta and almonds. 
and for that you steam or boil your purple sprouting broccoli till it's just tender then you refresh that in a bowl of some icy water just to keep the colour and stop it cooking Meanwhile, you make a dressing from a couple of tablespoons of olive oil, a couple of teaspoons of cider vinegar and a crushed clove of garlic. Mix that through the broccoli and then you sprinkle over a bit of crumbled feta and a few toasted flaked almonds and that's a lovely spring salad for you. That's really, really good. I mean, Abadi, like uh, as it was me, uh, we're looking for ways to cut corners, you know, reduce costs, etc. And that sounds like a fairly... Fairly good couple of recipes, nay too expensive to mark and using for, for you know, looking and growing about you. That's Thank it. you, Claire, for that. Nay bother. No, it is with great pleasure that we welcome our Scots Radio team member to our gardening throng again. Nay only is he a keen gardener, but this time last year he had just got the keys to his first ever allotment. And he's never looked back. It's been a huge success. Our thing's grown. Steve... Am I right? Are things going? Everything's been a success? More or less, aye. I mean, most things we managed to get a good crop. We, we got the, the keys to the allotment at the start of April last year, which is a wee bit late for getting started with the, the digging and everything to get it prepared. But we, we caught up with ourselves using loads of cloches and tunnels and, and fleece and everything just to keep things kind of ginging on. And we managed to get a, a whole bunch of stuff with some great garden centres doing in East Lothian with plenty of plug plants and I think to get me going. So this year I'm trying a bit of a different way, bringing a few things on for seed and we'll, we'll see how that gings. All right, so can you, what are you planting this year? Have you got an idea? Uh, it seems to be ingens, ingens and ingens with a bit of garlic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You'll be good at ingens then. <laughs> seem to have gone a bit of daft, but uh, I'll be growing tatties and I'll maybe doing them just at the allotment this year. I'll be doing them in, in these 30 litre pots at him as well. So about four or five different varieties we'll be trying out. You're going to be busy. You're going to be Okay, and we'll, we'll have the pleasure of your company throughout the season again. But for starters, fit your first question of the season for Dave. Well, uh, I was trying to bring on some of the, the heirloom ingens, uh, the Ailsa Craigs and Sick Lake and the Kelsey ingens. I was just wondering when they get that leggy, Dave. I've seen folk online maybe speaking about getting some of their ingen seedlings a bit of a haircut uh, just to kind of keep them in check and encourage them to thicken out a bit. Is that something you've heard about before? Oh, aye, you should trim your ingens periodically before they even start to get struggly. It helps to muck them a lot better. It gives them a stronger root system and a slightly bigger bulb. A lot of folk forget that the leaf is actually pushes energy down into the bulb and the bulb itself is actually the base of the leaf system. So trimming them makes the plants bigger and stronger and more tolerant to the wind and the weather when you pick them outside. It also makes the seedlings easier to handle and prick out. But mind, you need a good pair of sharp scissors with a long blade. Cut the deed bits off and then cut them down by another third at least. So there's about two inches left. Then I tug them and disturb the roots. Aye. And if you do that, maybe once every 23 weeks, depending on the growth, overall they'll thank you for the haircut at the end of the day. Very good. Okay, time for another question, Steve. Well, this is uh, going back a few months. We were speaking last year about uh, Willie Duncan and the Mechanopsis, because uh, as you can, I can't Willie through his, his apple ground, but he's real kent for Mechanopsis as well, and there's uh, any of them named after him, and I got in for Mac plants last year. And before we get away to Germany in the winter, it was looking bra, it had a fine puckle of leaves on it, and uh, when we came home two or three weeks after, then there was nothing to be seen of our, and I wonder if I've killed it. Well, you mixed, it mixed a deed. It, maybe it's just gone dormant under the surface back to the crown. 
you know, you know the big problems with Mechanopsis is the fact that they can rot if you plant them too deep and they become waterlogged. I think you should be a wee bit patient. It might come back again. And if it doesn't, get another in, make, put a wee bit gravelly and, you know, a bit of bark and stuff into the soil. When you plant it, just make sure you plant it so the neck's right at ground level. It, I think you've been unfortunate, mm. you know. Get another go. I've tried twice to grow Willie Duncan Mechanopsis and one outside, which didn't come at all, and then I got great show in the greenhouse and then they disappeared completely. Hmm. Not being not being popular in that, that sense. If they're, if they're too deep, they rot off at the crown. Uh, I've got them in my back garden and they come up like weeds, you mm. know, once <laughs> they get established. I mean, maybe I'm just lucky, but when I plant them in the ground, I always put in a wee bit extra garden comp leaf mold wheel rotted leaf mold maybe a wee bit right. of turkey grit or something like that so the soil's moisture retentive but free draining now i'll tell you another wee story about mechanopsis and that i've seen folks saw the seedlings in a pot Aye. and then what they do is they say it's no germinated it's no come up and i said well leave it alone it'll come up next year nah i'm telling you it will it'll come up next year i've seen them take three years to germinate Aye. really so you just don't I be in a hurry to throw things in That's the bucket. <laughs> Patience. I have two, two or three Patience. tiny wee shoots coming out now and I've put a cloche uh-huh. out at the new and hopefully we'll be right as rain come the summer. Oh, I think you'll be fine. This is the most important time for the birds and looking after their young broods. Speaking to Dave about that as well. How can we be good to wildlife in our gardens is a, is a popular topic here. Dave, three plants for wildlife. Uh, no, that, that's no fair. Three. You know, three plants. Well, I'm going to really quick. My old favourites, Abrisha, Thyme and Lavender, and the Pita and Budliers. If I had to choose a tree, it would be a cherry or blackthorn. If I wanted a climber, it would be honeysuckle. If it was a hedge, it would be hawthorn. And you can't beat oxide daisies and primroses for the spring and the summer. So there you go. We're rumbling through spring. Usual carry-ons with wither, snar, sun, mare snar. But in a minute, we'll hear mare, fair cook, Claire Patterson, far has got some mere seasonal recipes. But afore that, cast your mind back to those salad days. When we saunter out to the garden to pick up a few salad leaves and herbs, sauntered back, singing happily as we went, swinging our trugs merrily. It's a distant memory, I know, but we dream, and Dave Mitchell will now start us again on that journey. He's good at swinging trugs. Give your suggestions, Dave, for salads and herbs. Well, I'll, as you can, I like cooking and I love herbs and I grow all mine in containers in the garden. I've got things like apple mint and spearmint and the variegated ginger mint. For woody plants, I've got the bay and rosemary, you know, absolute core herbs for the cupboard. And I've golden and purple sage and non-bronze fennel oh, and silver and green and golden thyme. And again, you know, things like marjoram and parsley and lovage. I love lovage. This year I'm trying a wee basil called Aristotle, which is quite tiny and it grows on the windowsill. And another all-time favourite, coriander and cilantro. I saw that at three-week intervals throughout the season. And again, it's not really a herb, but I tend to think it is a herb because you can eat the leaves as well as the roots, and that's the radish French breakfast. For salad leaves, I grow mine in four large troughs and some big fancy terracotta pots. I've got beetroot pablo, 
and the leaf beat rainbow chard. I love both of them for their colourful leaves, because as Claire will know, they're a great accompaniment for white fish or salmon. Mm -hmm. They add a lot of colour to the plate. And my chums, salad bowl and red salad bowl, two lovely lettuce, and another old heirloom lettuce called crisp mint. That thing's worth a place in any garden. And I got all of them for king seeds. Mid-season, I'm maybe getting fed up with some of that stuff, so I usually sow a few lamb's lettuce trophy or salad leaf mix I have you in called bright and spicy or maybe even a bit of pak choy. And this year, I've got rocket artemis and rocket wasabi and another new thing called saltwort or a greedy, which is favoured by the Italian chefs. I got that for DT Browns. Steve's was speaking about growing tatties and bags. I'm short of space, but I've got a salad potato this year for a wee treat called Jazzy, and a carrot called Sweet Candle, which is a wee cylindrical carrot. It's a good stubby shape, and another even wee stubbier in for containers called Aron. As regards feeding them and watering them, I always use a loam-based John Ennis compost with a wee bit added composted bark and a little bone meal. And I use the same thing with my herbs, but I usually put a wee bit of grit in the bottom added to the, to the compost itself and lots of crocs in the bottom of the pot. I check the watering regularly. Okay, morning and night, I don't like them to dry out. Herbs don't like drying out. And, you know, even worse, they don't like getting too wet because they can rot off, and I feed them with a half-strength liquid feed, something like seaweed extract or fostogen. But I wanted to ask Steve what huh. his favourite salad crop was for the household, especially with the young members of the family. You know, what are you growing this year to entice them to eat vegetables? Well, the the favourite here, we have a wee sort of old planter that we, we just put some uh, mizuna in, and she has been, I mean, I explained it to her like Japanese rocket. So, and she's going to get some Japanese rocket in her app, Dad, with a bit of hummus and stuff, and she absolutely loved it. So oh, she's loved coming out and, and picking it. And we've had it all the winter through, and it's it's a wah that's gone to seed now. We've had it here the whole winter, and it's been brilliant. Claire, what about you? If you had to have three herbs at the kitchen door, what would they be and why? Uh, now, you asked me this earlier, and I picked three, and I've been thinking and thinking. I'm sticking to my guns. So be absolutely, put it in everything, root for everything. It's... One of those things that nothing tastes right without it. And I'll quite often be running out in the rain to grab a bay leaf from the herb garden. I'm sort of cursing away knowing that I have to do it because it won't be right. The second one, thyme or savoury, is great with tomatoes, mushrooms. Again, it gives that base flavour, absolutely delicious. And then my third one has to be parsley because it can be the, the star of the show in a salad. You can use it for a herby crust, for fish or meat. And it just provides that instant freshness. And because you didn't stick to three, Dave, I'm not sticking to three either. So I'm going to quickly and cheekily <laughs> stick chives, borage and mint on at the end as well. <laughs> oh. You know, that's interesting. That the things that you've picked are what I would call medieval herbs. They've ah. been around for a long time and they're well tried and tested. Well, there's a good reason for it. <laughs> I don't know, I think it's just because they work, you know. Mm -hmm. And I, I know, Frida, you've grown a lot of unusual salad crops in the past. What yens are the most popular with your chums? I was interested to hear Steve planting mizuna. I've, I've got a real fondness for a packet of seeds called Oriental and Unusual Mizuna. And they are fabulous because they self-feed every year and they come up out of the greenhouse. But the, the mizunas are just 
really rock hardy and they, mm. they taste wonderful. Right. Of course, I've got, you know, my usual basil, and I, I use a variety of sweet Genovese, which are, are really fabulous. And I've got rocket in the greenhouse already, so I'm, I'm using salads already. Uh, they've just self-seeded over the winter, and I'm just delighted with the fact that I've had rocket since about January. And, of course, pak choy, lovely about pak choy. Uh, just a, a mixture of green lettuce. But basically, these are my, my oh, coriander. I forgot my coriander. I love oh, coriander. I love, and wild Maybe. marjoram, because that attracts yeah. the bees and, the, and the, the butterflies. And that's me. You know, I, th I think that really sums it up. You know, salads and herbs are just wonderful things for the garden. Oh, so, fabulous. you know, for all your listeners out there, whether they've got big gardens or small gardens or a patio or even just a balcony of a flat in the middle of the city, don't be shy. Give them a try. They're easy to grow. They're rewarding. Yep. And believe you me, there's nothing better than a simple herb omelette full of fresh mm -hmm. herbs with a lovely green salad, a wee bit of toasted salad bread on the side, absolutely scrummy and very healthy for you. But I also grow a lot of edible flowers. Well, when I speak about the edible flowers, like the tamthums, yeah. uh, I grow a lot of nasturtiums mm -hmm. um, and tamthums, and they're great because the flowers are just fabulous. They taste fabulous. They've got that spicy taste. And, of course, they've got the corn flour and the marigolds, uh, you know, the calendula. The colours that they add into a bowl of salads is just fabulous. And it's, it's enough a good idea for Burns as well to, to look at all the flowers and different things in the salad bowl. I love it when you hear folk come round and you've got a big salad bowl that's got flowers in it and folk have seen that before and you just see the look in their <laughs> face, you know. Flowers. I love the flowers. Ah, it's, it's dandy. It's, I didn't just, know enjoy. was edible. That's really interesting. Uh, enjoy. Right. Hey, you ain't will need to crack on because... Um, Claire is about to test us again with our second selection of wonderful recipes. Kale crisps. Think of kale Hi. crisps. Oh, Hi. Have you ever ever had kale crisps, Frida? No. Not, you ever tried not, them? No. Well, here you go. Here's something to try. So you get your kale, take off the tough stalks, and you tear it into small pieces. You need to dry it really, really, really thoroughly because if it's damp at all, it will only crisp. And then you just toss it in with a wee drop of sunflower oil. And I put in a wee splash of soy sauce as well. And then lay it out in some big baking trays in a single layer. Again, that's really important or else it won't work. Um, you bake it in a lowish oven, about 130 Celsius, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Give it a wee sugar around halfway through and it'll crisp up. And then when I bring it out because of the soy sauce, I sort of finish with a wee sprinkle of toasted sesame seeds. So you've got that kind of... Eastern kind of flavour going on, but it's lovely with just a wee sprinkle of salt as well. And then once you've had your wee nibbly kale crisps and you're ready for some pudding, I've got a rhubarb and elderflower jelly. Oof. So for about a this this is great because what it what it uses is all that lovely liquid that comes off the rhubarb when you're cooking it, and that mm -hmm. you don't really know what to do with. This is a kind of doubler, so you've got the rhubarb itself and you've got that liquid. So you've got a pound of trimmed and chopped rhubarb. Four ounces of castor sugar and four tablespoons uh, elderflower cordial. Just let that sit for maybe ten minutes, so just to sort of start to get the juices coming out the rhubarb a wee bit, and then you cook it very, very gently on the hob until the rhubarb's tender, but it's not mushy. Strain out and collect the cooking juices, and you measure out 150 mils. Warm that back up while you soak two sheets of gelatin in a wee bit cold water, and then. Take the rhubarb liquor off the heat, whisk in the gelatin, 
and then to sort of set it up the way I would do it was I'd put a wee bit of the rhubarb that you've poached in the bottom of a couple of glasses the jelly on top let it set and then I would top that with a mixture of Greek yogurt a wee bit of double cream and a wee bit more of the elderflower cordial just whisked up to like kind of floppy consistency that on top of the jelly and then finished with the reserved poached rhubarb so you've got a wee kind of layered dessert with all the different bits and it's so nice Beautiful colour this time of year, that lovely pink new season rhubarb. Aye, and the rhubarb is just coming on fine in the greenhouse as I speak. Yeah, it's so doing great. There's two. Good. Thank you, Claire. Thank you. No, earlier on, I was watching the honeybees on the blackthorn buds and my wee widdy fit a sight that was. But nay, our bugs and beasties are good news, as I found out earlier for Forrester Irvin Ross. Now, Irvin was one of the neighbours that helped me plant and planned my wee widdy a long way his wife Veronica all these years ago so he kens what I'm speaking about and he kens a widdy but 20 years on the trees need looking after <laughs> a bit like myself really now from Geordie for helps me here cut up the deed cherry trees we found really amazing patterns inside the wood like Aztec drawings if you can imagine that or feather patterns they were amazing well I was worried in case I had Dutch elm disease. So, Irvin joined me out in the wee widdy on a frosty morning to hear a look at the strange markings on the wood. Fit is it, Irvin? Patat. Well, looks a bit like a feather on the surface of the wood, doesn't Aye. it? Aye. But the bark's gone and that lets us see it now. Mm-hmm. But fit you've got there is the evidence of a bark boring beetle. A bark boring beetle? Aye. You can see see the the stem of the feather running right. along there. Right. Well, that's where the adult beetle has bored a hole in the in the bark, uh-huh. got down to the, what we call the cambium layer. That's the layer just between the bark and the timber itself. Uh-huh. That's the active growing layer of the tree. So that's where most of the sugars are to support the the cell division and the growth. And that's the good bit to eat. Right. Then the mother beetle makes this long tunnel through there. It's about what. Seven, ten centimetres long. Aye. And all the way along the tunnel, it lays its eggs. So these little scores off to the right and left... Are for all the eggs have hatched out, and every little grub has tunnelled its way along, eating the cambium. And at the end, you see the little hole Uh where the grub's pupated, bored itself a hole out from underneath the bark and emerges an adult beetle and flown onto the next tree. So... I've got, I didn't even plant elm trees, I can't imagine us planting elm trees. We, we planted cherry trees. Aye, this is cherry wood. So this is no elm? No, it's no, it's no Dutch elm disease. You would see exactly the same thing on a diseased elm tree. Aye. It looks just like that. But this tree has died of, of other diseases, and if I mind right, you had a bad dose of bacterial canker. I did. And it was coupled with the black cherry fly at the same time. So you had a double hit. I did. And that was all much for the tree to deal with. I felt it. Ah. <laughs> and this has happened once the trees died. What you mentioned before, the Dutch elm disease, oh, that's a different thing. That's a beetle that'll attack the live living tree. It does exactly the same thing. Cuts its gallery, leaves its eggs in there and the, the eggs eat away at the cambium, and emerge as an adult. But the thing about the Dutch elm beetle, it's called scolitis scolitis, fine name. Scolitis scolitis. Scolitis scolitis. 
It's near the beetle itself that causes the damage. It's the fungus that the beetle can carry with it from one tree to the other. And a little wee hairs in its back. Aye, if, if you look at a magnified photograph of a beetle, you'll see that it's got tiny little hairs Aye. on its legs and on its back. Now, if it goes into a tree that's infected with Dutch elm disease, the fungus is there in the wood. Cuts its tunnel, comes out again, and where it comes are the, the, the spores of the fungus. So it flies to a healthy tree, does the same thing again, and leaves the spores of the fungus behind it, and that healthy tree then becomes infected. But uh, this is not the first time we've had boring beetles in Scotland, though. Because you mentioned when we were walking across here, walking across the park, that there were some found in peat. Now, how far back did that go? <laughs> well, the first instance we know of of Dutch elm disease in this country happened about 4,000 BC, that's 6,000 years ago. Dutch elm disease? Dutch, well, if it wasn't a Dutch elm disease, it was something very like it, and it seems to have been carried by the same beetle, Scolitis scolitis. How did we ken it? How did we ken? Well, we can feel looking at what we call peat cores. Mm. If you can imagine, you've got a, a shallow lock in a, in a wood, and over the years, either the leaves and the needles and the vegetation around about blows into the lock, settles down to the bottom, and it forms peat. And this just happens year upon year upon year upon year. So you get layers of peat building up. But it's not just the, the vegetation that falls into the lock, and the other thing that falls in is pollen. <laughs> now, anybody that bides in the country will ken the boot early part of the summer, you'll often see the puddles at the side of the road just covered in yellow dust. And that's tree pollen. Mm -hmm. So the tree pollen's fallen into the locking as well, and it's settling to the bottom, and you can see it building up in layers in the peat. Uh -huh. And the other thing that falls in sometimes is the remains of beasties, so you get bits of preserved beetle. So you found them in the samples of the peat. So, if you then come along with a, a borer and you take a core out of the peat, you can look back in time over thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And what we found was, well, I didn't find it, but the scientists did, somewhere about 4,000 BC, we'd been getting lots and lots of elm pollen and all of a sudden, nothing. All the elms just died very, very quickly. And there was a lot of debate about what was the cause of this? Was it a change in climate? Was it humans coming in and cutting down the trees? But for all the evidence we've been managed to put together over the years now, we're fairly clear that it was another instance of a disease, just like Dutch elm disease, that came in and infected the elm trees and virtually wiped them out. And it was about a thousand years before we got elm trees back into this country again. And that seemed to coincide with the start of Fermin. No, that's another chapter. <laughs> ah. another chapter. Well, it, the two were, were combined, you see, because the beetle likes flying along the edge of woodlands mm -hmm. and it doesn't like dense woodland. But when the farmers came along and started thinning out the wood, it made better conditions for the beetle to fly. Mm -hmm. And we think it's the combination of the, the arrival of humans, the start of agriculture, the opening up the wood, making them lighter and further apart and made ideal conditions for the beetle to fly and then in came the disease and the two things combined together just wiped out the elm trees wholesale.
Speaking about ideal conditions, my lugs are calm. <laughs> the frost has not shifted. I, uh, my hands are frozen <laughs> to the microphone. I kinda kinda heard this out there no longer. You're just a, 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 you're a, like a walking encyclopedia of trees. I've just thoroughly enjoyed being out here. But you think my woody's looking okay? Your lo- woody's looking fine. Your trees are healthier. If good sizing them for their age oh, as well. Yeah, I'm proud of my little woody. No. And I'm going to be planting Merut Ur in this corner. Hopefully by the end of spring, because I've got until set April. Aye, aye. Barely. Especially, well, if, you, if you've got container-grown trees, you can more or less plant any time you like. But you're better, better March, April time, aye. Right, so I'll have tubes and nothing. Do you want a job? I'm all right. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I'm definitely out of, I'm de- definitely out of, we're standing here, we're looking over to, uh, to Morven, covered in snow, and we're, we're both freezing, I think it's time for a, a cup of tea. I'll go for that. <laughs> and a big thank you to Irvin Ross for his help and diagnosis. Well, folkies, fit you mark of that, boring beetles and peat and nothing. Dave? Well... I'll give you a few facts about these boring beetles, because they're no boring. You can, there's <laughs> 6,000 different kinds in the world. There's 66 different yens in Britain, and they're wee deals. They attack commercial forestry trees, but they actually have a big impact on coffee crops and natural woodlands. They tend to go for trees that are stressed and susceptible due to drought or disease. <laughs> but what attracts them to the tree is actually volatile chemicals that's produced by the fermenting sap inside the tree. Mm. And then when they find that, they communicate and tell their pals, a funny, oh, this is great. And they do that using pheromones. And that beetle that Irvin mentioned, the Scoletus Scoletus, that spreads the Dutch elm disease, mm. it can communicate using chemicals over a two-mile radius. Oh. And most of these wow. beetles... Most of these beetles have a relationship with a specific fungus and they use that fungus to help them transfer the dead and decaying and living timber into sugar. And it's the fungus that determines whether the beetle attacks a live tree or a dead tree. All in all, they're naked bugs, but they're no boring. They're often Tennis. interesting. You mean, Steve... Is it just me? I find this fascinating. (laughs) Maybe I've led a sheltered life. I think this is great. Absolutely. They're amazing. And that pattern that you were describing inside the trunk, it's actually a thing of beauty. It is beautiful. It it really is. I mean, Uh they're designing that underneath the bark and using the fungus to turn it into sugar and they're they're just having a great time and thinking, Uh well, the world's all right for me. I'm happy. Up your trees, I'm no bothered about them, you know. I'll just eat what I like. Steve, you come in there. What do you think? Well, I was just wondering, Frida, who did you notice it on your own trees? Well, it's when Jordy cut the the, the cherry, when I thought was, I didn't think it was cherry because it had been lying for a while. But when he cut a bit off the cherry bark or off the cherry trunk, there it was. This beautiful shape, design, and well, they're standing there looking at it. And Jordy Farai's experience in the woods, he didn't like think it was either, so that's why mm. I got Huda Irvin to say, I haven't seen a lot of Aztecs in my neck of the woods for a while, but <laughs> uh, I, I thought it was an Aztec designs. It was feathers, but there it was. It was boring beetles. Aye, it's half fascinating. It, it reminds you in some ways of those amazing lines in the desert in South America, the lines mm. of Nazca. You know, they're incredible. Steve, come in again. 
it's just half interesting Frida, just to think are they things that are going on literally under the surface and you wouldn't have until you, you cut it open as well it's just are that life going on in the in the forest and other things to try and contend with and i'm i'm waiting to see what the funny wee uh, white eggs is on my my apple tree the new i've got some big burrs there with these funny wee white eggs which is maybe to do with the aphids or something but i'll let you can all right with a paintbrush tucking them off <laughs> and dave has some examples of good bugs that actually help us in the garden among the trees dave oh there's a huge list of good bugs you know Bugs are nae bad. I mean, if you think about bees and pollinators, whether it's honeybees, bumblebees, carder bees, or mining bees, they're brilliant. Life wouldn't be the same without them. Man wouldn't survive without bees. And then there's a myriad of other pollinating insects, including other beetles and butterflies and moths and micromoths and hoverflies. And then there's all the gardeners, hidden soldiers that deal with the nasties like aphids including lacewings and ladybirds. They're, they're no longer sorting the aphids out. You oh, even get hunting spiders that keep a good balance in the garden between good insects and bad insects. And there's parasitic wasps. There's yin of them. I love it. It's magic. It feeds purely on cabbage white butterflies. It eats nothing else. And then you get centipedes that feed on slugs and guys called pirate bugs that eat thrips. Insects and bugs are the gardener's best friend. They're no his enemy. Thank you, Dave. And before we go, before we go, I said earlier that Steve would give us an update on the Dandelion Project or his part in it. Maybe give us a quick description of the Dandelion Project again, Steve, just to remind us. Well, Frida, it's a, a project out of the whole year between now and the Hearst time, so culminates in September. There's about more than a dozen Places our Scotland for the Uists to uh, hike and a warp to, to live and I hang up in the north. So, and I'm working with Fowler Gardens in Dundee, Leaven, Hike and Falkirk. And there's three of us. There's myself, uh, Manny McFadden and Gary West are the creative ethnologists and residents. But there's a whole team of folk that are big in these things called unexpected gardens. So, for example, at the Leavening, we're tacking out of the car park at the back of the, the community centre there and, and putting a garden in. Uh, places that folk wouldn't expect to find them. And it's it's really to bring communities together, getting ideas of, of sowing, growing and sharing food. And there's hunters of skills involved. And we're putting together an education pack for the bairns. There's a tatty giveaway at the end of April. All sorts of things. So just keep an eye out for it. Dandelion.scot. It's, it's, just, it's just great. Now, I've had quite a few folk asking me about how to grow sunflowers, either as a gesture of support for Ukraine or to sell, to raise money for the various charities. Now, the sunflower being the Ukrainian national flower. So, Dave, first, can you help folk who have just started with the idea to grow sunflowers? What, far, how, and fan? Well, I mean, sunflowers are pretty easy to grow. Things like Giant Single or Pike's Peak that get to over four metres tall, or there's another variety called Oranges and Lemons that's a wee bit smaller, and they're freely available as seed in the garden centre. You simply sow them in some general potting compost between March and May, indoors on the windowsill, and then plant them out in the border in a really sunny spot after the fear of frost has passed. And it's a good idea to fork a wee bit of garden compost or fertiliser into the ground before you plant them. But you can also sow them outdoors and you may even want to try them in a large pot in the patio. But remember, if you're growing them in a large pot, keep an eye on the water. They don't like to dry out. Feed them regularly with a general liquid feed. And mind, in a pot, they may need support from a cane. 
They're great and easy ways to get kids interested in gardening. And they are the source of one of the most important oils that we use as part of our daily diet, sunflower oil. And I, for one, will be growing quite a few sunflowers this year. So thank you, folks. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to the end of this, our first virtual garden programme, Grow Radio 2022. So join us again. Name matter if you've just started. I've been there, and I hope you've enjoyed our first Donna doing the garden and other bits of the croft. In this new season, Dinepitoff, just get into your garden and into your pots. Here's the email address if you want to contact us to send your emails or even your phone recordings. Email info at growradio.com. And you can find out our record button on our webpage. Our webpage, you can get all the information there as well and the past programs www.growradio.com www.growradio.com So, on behalf of the team, Dave Mitchell, Richard Werner, Claire Patterson, Steve Byrne, and myself, Frieda Morrison, enjoy your garden! <laughs>